Oh, my God. 
minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Uh, and here we are on a Tuesday morning broadcast in the midst of our nine days. Spoken word format, uh, quarterback by Rabbi Beryl Wine. He has an amazing uh, series I don't think we've ever presented before. This is a series I don't think we've ever presented before. Uh, the series is entitled Women of Importance in Jewish History. Women of Importance in Jewish History. And the first lecture is a lecture about Devorah Hanaviah, Devorah the Prophetess. And that's how we're going to begin on a Tuesday morning broadcast in our spoken word nine days format here at JM in the AM. Uh, tonight is the uh, first of a series of six lectures on Tuesday nights here, uh, regarding women of great influence in the Jewish world. All women are of great influence in the Jewish world. And uh, uh, the Torah uh, paid proper attention to that. The uh, Torah tells us that there were seven women, that the Talmud teaches us rather, that there were seven women that were ranked as prophets, uh, neviot, uh, amongst the Jewish people. Uh, the first one is our mother Sarah. Uh, the Torah it says, "Kol Asher Tomar Elecha Sora Shma Bekola." Whatever Sora told Avraham, Avraham was bidden to follow her advice, her words. So the Talmud derives from there that in prophecy she was greater than uh, than Avraham, and it's uh, more than uh, just the intuition of women, the wisdom of women, which is uh, repeated so often in uh, Mishlei, for instance, and in Proverbs. But it is a general understanding that women have a connection to spirituality uh, that men find hard to emulate. Perhaps uh, that's the reason that uh, women are not obligated with as many commandments as men are, simply because they don't need that. In any event, the prophetess that we're going to speak about tonight is Devorah. The great uh, Devorah, uh, who appears to us in the book of Shoftim. Now there is another Dvorah that is mentioned in the Torah who was the uh, nurse of Rivka and who is mentioned when Yaakov returns from uh, his exile when Jacob returns to the land of Israel he hears that she dies and he uh, is affected by her death which uh, then precedes the death of his wife Rachel 
So Dvora is mentioned in the Chumash. Now, the rabbis commented that the name Dvora is not such a nice name. A Dvora is a bee, and a bee stings. The Talmud in Megillah comments that there were two great uh, Jewish prophetesses who didn't have such pleasant names. One was Dvorah and the other was Hulda. And Hulda was like a weasel. But uh, as someone remarked here already, uh, a bee also gives honey. And to a certain extent, uh, names always represent the character of the person uh, who bears the name, especially in biblical and Talmudic tradition. So even though names are given by parents, uh, there's so to speak a, uh, a guiding hand that helps decide what the proper name should be uh, so that the name re- reflects the uh, character and mission in life that the person will undertake. So Dvora, it's true, bees sting, but it's also true that they produce honey. Now, Dvora happens to be a very powerful woman, which I imagine is the stinging part, because with the rule, and we'll see uh, in the uh, prophecies that she uh, utters, uh, there's criticism of others. There are strong words. Uh, There are principles enunciated. But also the fact that she, uh, to a great extent, is the savior of the Jewish people here in the time of the Shoftim, when the Canaanite kings still reigned in the country and persecuted the Jews unmercifully. Now, uh, we are talking about a period of time a few centuries after the Jewish people came already to the land of Israel. You know, we uh, we deal with fast time, with instant time, so uh, patience is not one of our virtues, especially historic patience. Patience that takes centuries for the matter to be resolved. We try to have... Uh, you know, let's have a meeting, uh, 20 minutes, we'll settle everything, and that's it. But uh, the historical processes take much longer, and especially uh, when we are concerned with uh, the Jewish people and the land of Israel. So they come in at the time of Yoshua, they are unable to conquer the entire land even though there's seven years of war and seven years to settle the land. But uh, great pockets of the land of Israel are not under Jewish control. You have the Philistines on the coast and the Canaanites pretty much in the Galilee. And uh, this uh, situation remains for... uh, century, century and a half, two centuries. It's not under Jewish domination. But uh, 
the Canaanites attempt to eradicate the Jewish people to eradicate them spiritually and physically and at the time of Dora they are very strong and there is a famed general by the name of Sisra who commands the Canaanite army and he's like the undefeated champion of the world never lost and uh, the Tanakh itself portrays for us uh, that the Canaanites and the Philistines had an advantage over the Jews a technological advantage in warfare Uh, they were already in the Iron Age the Jews were still in the Bronze Age they did not the Jews did not have iron chariots nor did they have iron weapons yet so it would be like uh, God forbid having to fight a war today uh, having uh, civil war American muskets against uh, machine guns and uh, automatic rifles so the technology is against the Jews and so not only that the Jewish people for a change are divided (laughs) they can't get along with each other there were 12 uh, tribes Uh, the tribal instinct remains very strong within them so that to have a unified government at the time of the Shoftim was almost impossible so every Shofet, every one of the judges that ruled ruled over certain tribes and in certain localities but he's not in charge of the whole country and not all the tribes are going to listen to him because of the fact that you know I'm from this group and you're from that group why should I listen to you and the Tanakh itself makes mention of that when it says Ein Melech Israel, there is no king meaning there's no unifying government you have the ultimate democracy that everybody does their own thing and everybody uh, nobody, nobody is bound so to speak to follow anybody else oh, this is a very dangerous period in Jewish history and not only dangerous in terms of military uh, terms uh, because uh, it's obvious that the, the, they're going to be at a tremendous military disadvantage but it's dangerous in terms of religious terms because of the fact that somehow uh, the uh, Canaanites and the Philistines all of whom were pagans all of whom worshipped uh, idols apparently are doing very well and the Israelites who worship the one God are not doing so well and people have a tendency to judge religion by success Uh, the Jewish people have learned long ago that that's a false equation that just doesn't work but nevertheless it has an influence and therefore in the time of Devorah 
this has an influence. So the first question that really we are faced with is uh, how did she become the Shofetes? How did she become the uh, chief judge of Israel so, so, so uh, as described in Tanakh? The Talmud says to us that she came from the tribe of Naphtali. Now Naphtali is a uh, can't say a minor tribe, but the, the two major tribes are Yehuda and Ephraim, and uh, they are not producing the judges. The first judge, Osniel ben Knaz, was from Yehuda, but after that, until David Amelech, uh, we don't have Yehuda as taking a role of leadership even though it's a big tribe and Ephraim also is the other big tribe so this is like from a minor tribe she is the judge and the Tanakh describes her Dvora Ashes Lapidos Lapidos became a Jewish name right he was a fashion designer right uh, but uh, who is he? She's married to him. So there are different opinions in the Talmud. Now, again, what is uh, to me very uh, fascinating but difficult is that we don't, don't really have a handle on her biography. We don't know exactly what have, the details of her life. What about her children? Did she have children? If so, who were they? We're not told that. But we're told that Lapidus was her husband. So there's an opinion that his real name is not Lapidus, and that her husband was really the general, Borok ben Avinoam, the general whom she will appoint to fight the war against the Canaanites. But that she is certainly dominant. There's another opinion that Lapidos is Lapidos, that was a man. There's a third opinion that Lapidos, he was called Lapidos because of the fact that he lit the candles, Lapidos like a torch, he lit the candles in the Beit HaMidrash for the students to be able to study at night. From there we have a further Midrash that Dvora was so to speak a candle maker. The, the uh, Medrash asks Bamehi's Parnasah, how did she make a living? Because she didn't make a living from being the judge or the prophet. Because we're talking at a time when none of the uh, public officials were paid out of uh, the treasury of the public, so to speak. Well, that's an old story uh, that exists in the Jewish world. Uh, for instance, uh, rabbis were not paid uh, until uh, the first instance we have of it is in the 14th century in Vienna when they felt that they needed a full-time person. But until then, all the great rabbis, everybody, somehow they had a business, they had a profession, I don't know how they did it, 
but uh, they uh, no one ever got paid. So what? How did she get paid? So there are again different opinions. Yeah, so the opinions I don't think are meant to be taken quite literally as they are to uh, cast some light on the times. So one says that she was she made the, the candles, the wicks, and she made them so well that she is the cause that that's why it says Aceus Lapidos. It's not that Lapidos is the husband as much as she is the wife. The Gemara says that it's in her merit, in her schut, that Lapidos comes to the world to come. In other words, uh, she drags him along and not vice versa. This is part of the image of the fact that you have a very strong dominant personality here. Uh, who naturally would therefore uh, uh, be dominant in her family as well and uh, the husband uh, the husband is like almost an afterthought here and uh, that's reflected when she tells Borog ben Avinoam listen uh, take uh, gather up an army and make war on the Canaanites the Lord has told me you'll be successful he is hesitant he doesn't he says you know they got rockets and machine guns and everything and how am I going to do it and especially I can't put together an overwhelmingly large army so uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll postpone it. And she uh, not only encourages him, she demands that he does it. But she gives him the caveat. Ephes, however, you should know that you're not going to be the hero of this story. And that the hero of this story will be a woman. Which turns out to be the woman Ya'er. And Yael is the one that assassinates Sisera. She seduces him and kills him. She's the original black widow. And she says the glory of Israel will be because of her and not because of you. So that even the general of the army, or if we say uh, that is her husband, the one who actually pursues the war, is secondary in the story because this is a story of women. The Gemara itself says that two women that are the heroes here are Devorah and Yael. And she sees this in prophecy. She sees this in the, the Ruach HaKodesh and the Holy Spirit that invests her. And therefore, uh, uh, she has no doubts that. Uh, uh, what the result will be here and how successful he will be even though he is in doubt uh, there's a certain hesitancy we find also that the Talmud already uh, remarks upon uh, all of us know that for instance you cannot tell a man directions how to get this somewhere 
It's against our macho. It's against our nature. So, uh, you know, they made a study. There, there's a uh, service called Waze today, right? And when you plug in Waze, Waze recognizes where you are, a global uh, spotting. And uh, you plug in where you want to go. And then it tells you, turn right, turn left, take this, take that. So they made a study in uh, Great Britain in which uh, it showed uh, that uh, when men turn on the ways, they always prefer a male voice because they find it hard to take instructions from a female voice even though uh, the female voice is going to be unerringly correct. <laughs> so uh, we find that, uh, uh, that's the idea that I mentioned before, uh, by our father Avraham. Uh, Sora tells him to do something. Goresh has been Omazos. We have no future with Yishmael. And as painful as it is, we have to uh, make certain that our future is with Yitzchak. And Vayera Hadova Beine Avraham. Avraham didn't like that. He didn't like what she told him. And therefore the Lord intervenes, so to speak, and tells him, listen, Kol Asher Tomar Elecho Sora Everything that Sora told you, listen to her. Because she's right. She's the prophetess. I'm the one that's speaking to you through her. So the same thing is true here. Through Dvorah, God is speaking to Barak. And Barak is able to be successful. But as she pointed out at the beginning, uh, his ultimate success is not through him. He pursues Sisra, he tries to catch him, he can't catch him, but Sisra is now in the tent of the oil and she kills him. And when Borak comes charging up outside the tent, she says that the man that you're looking for is inside. But he was inside dead. And she, because of the fact that she had uh, killed the tyrant. So Dvora is a strong woman, a very strong woman. And uh, it's at a time when we needed a strong person, because in the time of the Shoftim, also, at uh, the time of the Shoftim, uh, almost none of the Shoftim were, uh, to put it nicely, impeccable character. Strange people. Gidon, Yiftach. They're not the people that you would, uh, well, I certainly wouldn't, they wouldn't get an interview in Mishpacha magazine. <laughs> they're, they're very, uh, they're out of box, they're all out of the box. And so at a time when uh, the leadership of Israel, so to speak, has to be out of the box, for whatever reason, and this is before the time of Shmuel. Shmuel it has to be seen as 
the, uh, that's why it says Shmuel is like Moshe and Aaron. Shmuel is the one that sets the uh, people on the correct path. He's the one that eliminates all of these things. Uh, but until his time, so then uh, to have the woman be the judge of Israel is perhaps not more out of the box than any of the other things that are happening. And perhaps that that's why she was so easily accepted. Now, where did she live? Again, different opinions. There's a place called Tomer Dvorah, the day tree of Dvorah. So therefore, there's an opinion, and the Medrash quotes it, uh, that she owned uh, date plantations near Jericho near Yericho and that that was so to speak the source of her income because in the ancient world in the, in the world of the Shoftim owning date trees was a very lucrative and profitable business because you had the dates and you were able to make liquor from it and the trees themselves were valuable so uh, that was the source of her uh, wealth Others say that she, uh, so, so if the date trees were in Yericho, so the Tomer Dvora was also in that area in the Jordan Valley, so to speak. Others say that uh, her home was here in Atarot, North Jerusalem. Jerusalem then was not a city uh, that was Jewish. It was a city that was uh, under the Yevusim, the Jebusites. And it was a very small city. It was just practically just a castle, a fortress. But Atarot was a village outside of this area. And we find later, for instance, that the Novi Yirmiyahu, the prophet to Jeremiah, also comes from Atarot. So the Yalkut, the, the Medrash, says that she lived in Atarot and that her income was from goats and sheep. Now, in the ancient world, all of this was, this was the money. Uh, the, uh, there was no paper money and you couldn't buy government bonds. And so the money was in land, it was in agriculture, it was in animals. But from all of the, everything, they, the different midrashim, uh, as to what her income was, she apparently was a wealthy woman. She was a woman of substance. And that, the Talmud also tells us, was a necessary requirement for leadership in the Jewish world. Uh, Poverty was never seen as an absolute virtue. That's Christianity. But uh, as far as, as leadership was concerned, so the rabbis even went so far as to say that, for instance, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, if he was appointed and he was a person that was poor, so then all the priests, all the Kohanim had to chip in together to make him wealthy. Because he had to be wealthy. 
and we find that even by prophets that's a play on words but even by the prophets of Israel the Talmud says that they had to be people that had substance, that had wealth and uh, because of that therefore uh, she uh, has uh, the ability uh, somebody that has wealth automatically has power automatically has influence the Gemara says Rabbi Hoyomachabi Rashirim. Donald Trump could not run for president if he didn't have four billion dollars. The question is, can he run for president even if he does have four billion dollars? That's a different matter that will be decided in the next few months. But there is no doubt that it is his wealth that has fueled what has happened. And uh, it's been true uh, almost uh, universally that uh, wealth is a necessary concomitant uh, to uh, power and influence. So she had to be a wealthy woman. Whether she's a wealthy woman because of her husband or because of herself, from most of the midrashim that are extant, it seems that she is a wealthy woman. She herself is the provider for all of this. And she uh, now is faced with this war, and uh, she uh, calls for volunteers for the army, because there was no standing Jewish army, and she does not get the response that she expected even from those tribes that were being persecuted and damaged by the Canaanite king. So, for instance, she criticizes the tribe of Ruvain. They didn't come. This one didn't come. Yisachar didn't come. Zvulun didn't come. She names the tribes that didn't respond because they didn't feel that it was their uh, battle, so to speak. What tribe is singled out for praise is Naphtali, which is her tribe. And uh, the uh, Borok uh, is able to assemble this uh, army, and they uh, are encamped on Har Tavor, you see that's the perfectly round mountain in the uh, Galilee now here the Canaanites make an error the error is one of overconfidence because Sisra is overconfident he's got the weapons he's got the technology he's never lost a war and these are just you know like a ragtag army is coming to fight him it's the same overconfidence that the Philistines had when they first encountered Shoal and David killed Goliath. Uh, overconfidence in war is a uh, terrible, terrible disaster. The whole history of the First World War can be written in the first six weeks of it. Germany thought they had it won. Austria thought they would run over Serbia. 
none of that happened and then you're in for more than four years of slaughter because all of the arrogance and the overconfidence somehow evaporates so uh, the Jews are encamped on Har Tavor so they have the high ground now in in war uh, today it's less so but it still is uh, important terrain the ground, the battlefield the ones that are on the high ground always have an advantage because the others to attack have to climb they're visible uh, they'll be uh, worn out you always want to have the high ground so therefore why should Sisra put himself in the position where Borak is on the high ground and he has to come up the mountain but that's what happens and because of that therefore Sisra is defeated and not only defeated the army is wiped out and Sisra has to flee for his life where uh, he comes to the tent of Yoel and there uh, she kills him so that that is outlined for us in the Tanakh the, the story is told of the war but the war marked a change, a sea change in Jewish life which really makes her so influential because from then on even though there would be other judges it becomes obvious that there has to be a central government it becomes obvious that it cannot go on that there'll be 12 separate tribes and every so often a judge of one tribe will have to make war to defend that's not going to do it and therefore uh, uh, when Shmuel who is the last of the judges uh, is uh, in power uh, the people ask for a king Uh, asking for a king uh, it doesn't necessarily mean only a king in terms of the monarchy but it means in terms of a central government it means in terms of having a uh, unified government that can enforce its will on all of the different tribes which is what Shoal was supposed to do but was not really successful but which David was successful in doing and established uh, the Davidic monarchy but that did not last because it split again so it's, uh, it's the nature I know how to put it nicely but it's the nature of the Jewish people uh, not to be unified the nature is uh, you know and we see that today in so many different respects as well that even though faced with mortal danger and surrounded by enemies and having a difficult time of things uh, we have plenty of time to uh, dispute among ourselves and not to accept uh, any sort of central authority but Dvora is the watershed she, her great influence is and that's why she mentions all the tribes that somehow did not respond 
in effect she's saying you see what it looks like so today we won the war but tomorrow there'll be another war God forbid and the other war some who we're going to ask to fight who's going to do it for us if we are not united by, with ourselves if we are not ruled centrally and that's a very important point and that's implicit in the song of Devorah now uh, the song of Devorah is the Haftorah that we read for Parshas B'Shalach because it's the compatriot song to the song of Moshe at uh, the Red Sea at Yamsuf so just as Moshe and the Jewish people sang their song of triumph here is another song of triumph this is the song of Dvorah but the song of Dvorah is just like the song of Moshe is not just a song about what happened but it's a song about what's going to happen it has the gift of prophecy in it and that's why it it was worthy of uh, inclusion in the holy books and it was something that was to be studied and analyzed uh, throughout the ages and it speaks to us as well so Dvorah describes her situation in the song she describes a time of near anarchy a time of disunity a time when uh, the Jewish people are being persecuted and there is no strong leadership and then she says a famous verse which uh, is interpreted different ways uh, both uh, complementary and otherwise she says Ad Shakamti Dvora this was until I got up until I Dvora got up Shakamti Aimbi Israel that I arose I'm the mother of Israel I took the matter into my hands I rallied the troops I'm the one that sent Borak to war I provided the spirit and the morale that would guarantee that we would be victorious now is that nice to say until I came there was nothing but now you know smacks of hubris of uh, arrogance of unjustified pride the Talmud takes both sides of the issue as it usually does because it's uh, there always is ambiguity in life it's never uh, or almost never black and white uh, exactly what, the way it's supposed to be so according to one opinion all of the song of Dvora is prophecy is holy but that verse is not the verse of Adsha Kamti Dvora until I Dvora rose and I'm the one that put it together and I'm the one that you know eh, eh, that's not because uh, the Lord doesn't suffer uh, that type of arrogance that's one opinion the other opinion is that it is part of the prophecy that uh, in every generation 
under every crisis, we have to have somebody that stands up for us. And that person has to feel, so to speak, the uh, strength of being able to do it. And therefore, Adshakamti Dvora, Adshakamti Aimbi Yisrael, until I arose as Dvora, until I arose as the mother of Israel, that's a challenge for every generation. So now in our generation, who is the Dvora? Who's the Aimbi Yisrael that will stand up for us? That's the question to be raised. And therefore, you have this. a double meaning, so to speak, is uh, two different viewpoints of the uh, uh, words that she said. But what is obvious from the words that she said is that she had a good opinion of herself. She was not, uh, you know, uh, oh, it was nothing, you know, uh, shucks, with good luck. That's not Dvora. Dvorah is, I did it. I stood up and did it. And because of me, we won. And therefore, uh, that remains a challenge for generations. She also represents the fact that there are many unsung heroes in Jewish life uh, and heroines, and that the Lord has, so to speak, his weapons and his customers, the Talmud, the Medrash records how many miracles happened in order for the Jewish army to have won on that day. One of the miracles is that Sisra stops off at the tent of Yoel, and therefore she's able to kill him. Now Yoel is again a very unlikely heroine. She's the wife of Hever Akeni. So we don't know who that is. There are opinions even that uh, they're not Jewish. That somehow they are descendants of Israel. They are not a member of any of the tribes of Israel. Uh, but she is the one that's the ultimate uh, heroine here. Because I'll call her Avera Lishma. She commits a sin for the sake of heaven and heaven rewards her for it because the only way that she can kill Sisra is at first she seduces him and uh, Tvora mentions her she should be blessed like the women of the tent who are the women of the tent so in our time we have women at the wall but who are the women of the tent the women of the tent are our mothers. Sarah, Rivka, Rochel, Leah. They're the generations of Jewish mothers that have preserved the Jewish people. And they have preserved us spiritually and physically. So she is part of that. She's their equal. Because of this deed. So again, it's a very unlikely event done by an unlikely person but that somehow is how God works right God never never conforms to our uh, pre-existing ideas as to how things should work 
and who the hero should be and how things should proceed. That's one of the things that we suffer from in our time is that we have had so many pre-existing ideas. We've been so certain how things should unfold that when they did not unfold in that fashion, we don't know how to deal with it. And the state of Israel is probably the primary example of that because it didn't happen the way anyone thought it was going to happen. And it hasn't turned out the way anyone thought it was going to turn out. So uh, that's what the rabbis meant when they quoted the verse, Yoshev Bashamayim Yitzchak, he who dwells in heaven laughs at us, he mocks us. Hashem Yilag Lomo, the Lord uh, chuckles at us. Right, because uh, we're so certain what's going to happen, what's right and what's wrong. God, uh, God does not uh, succumb to our predispositions on matters. Now that's one of the ideas that Dvorah introduces. Is that, uh, and that that really is prophecy. To be able to look at history and see all of the strange things that have happened all the things that have to fall into place and somehow it happened so then we should stand back in awe and with a little more humility and uh, and view things now there's an interesting uh, custom that the Jewish people have based upon Sisra's death. Uh, we sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah a hundred times. There are a hundred sounds. Kia, Shvorim, Truot, Kia is four. And then we, uh, you'll add it up, you'll see that we uh, blow uh, 30 four times and then we blow uh, the last ten to make it a hundred why do we what's a hundred what's so great about a hundred so there's a Tosvis in Rosh Hashanah that quotes a tradition and the tradition is from the song of Dvorah in the song of Dvorah, she says, Vatiyave Vaim Sisra, the mother of Sisra, wailed. So it says, Tosva says that our tradition is that she wailed a hundred times, and because she wailed a hundred times, we sound the show for a hundred times. So that just opens up another problem. What have we got to do with the mother of Sisra? And what, why, if she wailed a hundred times, why do we have to blow the shofar a hundred times? So there's a deep thought in here. Uh, I heard it once from Rabbi Soloveitchik, but I think it's quoted by others as well. Most of the time when you hear a good idea, it has many fathers. Cicero never was defeated. He had an unbeaten record. 
his mother is looking out the window waiting for him to come that's how Dvorah describes it and she describes how she is comforted by her uh, maids the people who help her and uh, she says how come his chariot hasn't come yet he should be back from the war by now and they say well don't worry there's a lot of booty they have to distribute there are a lot of prisoners he's busy with all of that in other words he's busy with triumph but after a period of time the mother realizes that he's not coming home and she realizes that he's not busy with booty and that somehow he's lost the war and even that he is dead and when she realizes that she wails she weeps so that's the sign of defeat the chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah is a testimony to the fact that we have tried everything and we are defeated we can't do it by ourselves no matter how many times we think we win we didn't win yet and many times in life we are undone by things that happen at the end that cancel everything that happened at the beginning so the sound of the chauffeur comes to awaken within us that realization the realization that to a great extent we are all sister's mother and therefore it sounded a hundred times just as sister's mother wailed a hundred times when she realized that she was defeated and that is implicit in this prophecy of Devorah that somehow uh, uh, the Lord will help us and we'll do everything in our power as well but at the end uh, we are uh, powerless and that's a great influence on uh, all later generations it's a profound message it's meant to put uh, put everything into perspective and that is the purpose of her poem that's the purpose of her song is to provide a perspective for all later Jewish history for all human history it's not restricted to the Jewish people we live at a time when great nations have been humbled unlikely events have occurred and nothing has gone to plan so how do we deal with that and that's all the realization of the fact that so to speak heaven has the final vote the final decision may not be ours this is uh, very close to the conclusion of Ryberal Wine's uh, lecture regarding Devorah Hanavia from his Women of Importance in Jewish History series uh, a, a series I don't think we ever uh, had on the air before. Information about this series and all of Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 
WEIN. It's a Tuesday morning broadcast with a reminder that this coming Sunday we're going to be at Camp Hask. It's Experience Day, and you're all invited to come and visit Camp Hask in Parksville, New York. We'll broadcast Monday morning's show, literally the show you're going to hear Monday morning, uh, on Sunday starting at 9 a.m. Eastern time up at Hask. Then at about 1 o'clock, the big concert begins with Joey Newcomb and Baruch Levine. And many special guests. It's all happening on Sunday. You're all invited to come on up to Camp Hask and enjoy the proceedings. I remind you that tomorrow night is Tish above. Thursday is Tish above. And uh, this year there will be no um, in-person Isaiah Wall Mincha service, but there will be a virtual one. If you'd like the uh, Zoom meeting ID so that you can uh, participate via Zoom and hear all the guest speakers, uh, if you'd like the Zoom meeting ID, you can either contact me, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, or contact Glenn Richter at 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. Mark Zamek, very early this morning, got me the schedule for the Erev Shabbos show. Obviously, we are not going to be airing an Erev Shabbos show while it's still Tisha B'Av, but the brand-new Erev Shabbos show for Shabbos Nachamu, which includes an insane number of Parsha and Haftorah songs, will air at midnight, which means 7 a.m. Friday in Israel. Keep that in mind, 7 a.m. Friday in Israel. Midnight, 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern time, all this coming Friday. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast is next. Boker Tov from Jam Nam. גליצל מירושלים השעה 2, שלום רב, באולפן רן יבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. ביהדות התורה מגיבים על הביקורת בליכוד על הצעת חוק יסוד לימודי התורה שהוגשה היום ומסרו, כפי שסוכם בהסכם הקואליציוני, יימצא פתרון מוסכם על כלל הסיעות בנושא הגיוס. מועד הגשת החוק הוא מקרי, וכל הנושא גובש בהסכמות בין מפלגות הקואליציה. כתבנו הפוליטי יובל שגב מוסר שגורמים ביהדות התורה הבהירו כי על הקואליציה לקדם את החוק או לקדם את פסקת ההתגברות באופן נקודתי לחוק הפטור מגיוס. חבר הכנסת חנוך מלביצקי מהליכוד אמר אצל יעל דן לא נסכים לקדם את החוקים. לגבי חוק הגיוס יצטרכו לטפל בו בנפרד בפינצטה, אבל לא דרך פסקת התגברות כללית שדרכה רוב פוליטי בכנסת תוכל לעקוף כל החלטה של בית משפט, זה לא יהיה. חוק לימוד התורה גם לא יהיה. יש עתיד עתרה לבג"ץ בדרישה לחייב את שר המשפטים לוין לכנס את הוועדה לבחירת שופטים. לטענת המפלגה מדובר בניסיון לשתק את הרשות השופטת וכי שר המשפטים לא יכול לשעבד את הסמכות שניתנה לו לקידום אינטרסים פוליטיים. כתבתנו לענייני משפט, תמר שונמי מוסרת שהעתירה מוגשת שבועיים לאחר בחירת נציג הקואליציה בוועדה אך כשטרם נבחרו נציג לשכת עורכי הדין ושרה מהממשלה. חברת הכנסת קרין אלהרר מיש עתיד, שוחחה עם אמיר איבגי. יש פרישה של שופטים טבעית, כי הם מגיעים לגיל פרישה, ואין להם מחליפים. עד אוקטובר אנחנו נמצא במחסור של 50 שופטים. פה השר מסרב לכנס הוועדה גם לגבי מינויים בערכאות נמוכות. הפגיעה היא פגיעה באזרחי ישראל. הליכוד יוצא בקמפיין לסייע לאזרחים סוג ב'. בדיוק האזרחים שצריכים את הסיוע לא מקבלים אותו. השקל ממשיך לאבד מערכו, האירו מזנק ביותר משני אחוזים ונסחר תמורת ארבעה שקלים ועשר אגורות, שיא מאז התפרצות מגפת הקורונה במרס 2020. הדולר מזנק ביותר משני אחוזים וחצי. בבורסה בתל אביב נרשמות ירידות שערים חדות של יותר משני אחוזים וחצי, ומדד הבנקים צונח בארבעה אחוזים. כתבנו לענייני כלכלה ישראל פישר מזכיר 
כי הירידות החדות בשווקים החלו אתמול עם אישורה באופן חד צדדי של החקיקה לביטול עילת הסבירות. בית הדין לעבודה דן בצהריים בבקשת המדינה להוצאת צווי מניעה לשביתה במערכת הבריאות. במהלך הדיון הציע שר הבריאות משה ארבל פשרה כי השביתה תסתיים בשעה אחת, אך בהסתדרות הרפואית דחו את ההצעה וכעת ממתינים להחלטת השופטת. בסיום הדיון אמר שר הבריאות לכתבתנו טלאור מאירסון, זו שביתה פראית, פוליטית ולא הוגנת. זו שביתה שלטעמי היא פראית, פוליטית, לא הוגנת ופוגעת באזרחי ישראל כולם. תומכי הרפורמה ומתנגדיה, יהודים וערבים, דתיים וחילונים, חרדים ושאינם. החובה שלי כמי שממונה על מערכת הבריאות, לדאוג לבריאותם של אזרחי ישראל. ומזג האוויר גם מחר חם מאוד. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. JM in the AM, it is a uh, nine days format here, spoken word format here at the Nalchum Siegel Network, or specifically I should say, for JM and AM on the network, we're obviously still in a three weeks format. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Tisha B'Av begins tomorrow night. On Thursday, Rabbi Goldwasser will join us at 7.30. We'll have a 40-minute keynote service Thursday morning. Thursday morning from 7.30 until 8.10. I thank Rabbi Goldwasser profusely. Rabbi Goldwasser will be with us, and we will present actual keynote and um, Roy Goldwasser's explanation and uh, incredible words of, um, of commentary this coming Thursday. So 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, our live presentation of Kinos on the air here at JM in the AM. All right, Barrel Wine continues, this time with a lecture about Shlom Tzion HaMalka. Uh, that is the... Um, uh, lecture for this hour, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, and you're listening to JM in the AM. Your uh, concerns itself with uh, really one of the great figures in Jewish history. If we say that uh, in the destruction of the Second Temple, it was uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, uh, who uh, was instrumental in the salvation of the Jewish people by uh, saving the Torah and the yeshiva in Kerem Biavne. Uh, a few generations earlier, there's a woman who was instrumental in saving the Jewish people and the Jewish Torah, and her name was Shlomit Alexandra, who is known to us as Shlomtzion Hamalka. In the Greek, her name was Salome Alexandra, and uh, she was a uh, remarkable person, as I hope we'll be able to discuss. Now, we have to uh, have a little background to this. In about uh, 165 before the Common Era, uh, the Syrian Greeks, the Seleucid Empire, attempted to destroy the Jewish Commonwealth in the land of Israel, and they attempted to do so by destroying the Jewish religion. They had plenty of Jewish helpers. There always are Jewish helpers. 
and uh, they uh, erected a uh, statue of Zeus in the temple. Uh, they introduced uh, uh, pork and uh, other products of pigs, uh, not only into the Jewish diet, but into ritual sacrifices. They insisted on a culture of paganism and of Greek paganism. And at that time, uh, the Jewish community uh, was unable to withstand it. And there only were small pockets of Jews that remained loyal to Judaism and to the ideas of monotheism. One of those was a man by the name of Matityahu, who lived in the city of Modin, and he, together with his five sons, uh, mounted a rebellion against the Greek rule. Uh, it was originally guerrilla warfare, but it later developed into open warfare with uh, regular armies. And the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, triumphed. And they were able to uh, drive uh, the Syrian Greeks out of the country, uh, out of rule. Uh, they purified the temple, and that's the miracle of Hanukkah that we have. And uh, they established a dynasty that would last for 103 years. Now, Matichau was a Kohen. His son, Shimon, who was his successor, the brothers, many of the brothers got killed in the war. Yehuda, Elazar, Yonatan, they got killed in the war. But Shimon survived. And Shimon uh, was a very righteous, pious person. And uh, he became the head of the Jewish commonwealth. Now, he was well aware of the fact that uh, the Torah traditionally wanted a division of powers in Jewish leadership. In other words, the Kohen Godot, the high priest, was, so to speak, in charge of religion. There would be a king or a leader that would be in charge of running the country. And that all power would not be invested in one person. At the time of the first temple, it was further subdivided because there were prophets there were Nevi'im. The prophets had enormous influence on the population and on the rulers, even on the rulers that were wicked. In the second commonwealth, when Ezra reestablished it, so there were no more prophets. Uh, the Kohen Godol in the time of Ezra was first Sadok, and then it was Shimon Atzadik. But after that, during the Hellenist period, when the Greeks 
ruled, the Kohen Godol was a traitor because he was the one that uh, subverted the Jewish religion to Hellenism and he's the one that uh, allowed the temple to be defiled. When the Hashemunoyim came to power after driving out the Greeks, so uh, Shimon became the Kohen Godel. Shimon, the descendant of Matijau, the son, for the first of the Hasmonean rulers, he became the Kohen Godel. And he became the head of the government. Now, we have coins that were minted during his reign. And the coin says, Shimon Nasi, the president, the head. It does not say that he was the king. It implies that there is a governing body and that he somehow is the first of equals. He's the prime minister, he's the president, but it does not imply that he had any uh, monarchical ambitions because he is aware that the Torah had this separation of powers and he's also aware that under Jewish tradition any Jewish king has to be from the house of David has to be from the tribe of Yehuda and not a Kohen who is from the tribe of Levi so Shimon uh, gets a uh, really a passing grade more than a passing grade from the rabbis of the time from the Sanhedrin from the early Tanoim, the early authors of the Mishnah, Shimon is regarded as a uh, holy and valuable and wonderful person. But uh, Shimon passes away, and uh, now the Hasmoneans take upon themselves in one person the dual role of being the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and they call themselves King Melech, which rankles the rabbis. Now rabbis are always rankled. (laughs) But this disturbed them. But they did not take any action. And uh, the Hasmonean king uh, attempted to uh, restore uh, territory, prestige, power to the uh, nascent uh, Jewish uh, entity and uh, he, uh, he is always worried about the outside enemies they always are concerned that the Greeks are going to come back the Syrian Greeks. He's also concerned that the Romans, who are the new uh, bully on the block, uh, they're in the country already. So even though officially they are allies, 
and uh, for the first hundred years uh, they really uh, are not a direct threat and nevertheless everybody is nervous about them and that's how the Hasmodean kingdom is built now for a change as exists in almost all royal families there are disputes there are questions of succession who's going to be the next king and there is infighting and even civil war between brothers so you have a very volatile situation in this mix since there is no prophecy anymore so the development of the oral law of Torah Shabalpeh the development of the early Mishnah uh, the houses of study the early Tanoim they become the spiritual leaders of the people to a great extent they supplant the Kohen Gadol because the Kohen Gadol is a functionary but they uh, are the ones that teach the people and they are the ones that uh, have the closest relationship with the people there develops within the Jewish world uh, groups the old Hellenists who supported the Greeks uh, don't go away they're still there but they adopt a new uh, cover story for themselves it no longer is politically uh, acceptable to say that we're on the side of the Greeks so they uh, morph into what is called the Zdokim or the Sadducees they're a group of people very powerful representing the intelligentsia representing the upper class in wealth that want to adopt Greek ways and who deny the authority of the rabbis and who deny the authenticity of the oral law and they are successful in infiltrating the priestly class the Kohanim because they say to the Kohanim look uh, you know the people don't think that you're anything and they're following all these rabbis and you're really the children of Aaron and you're entitled and you're entitled and you're entitled it is not hard to stir up problems so the Zdokim exist and they exist as a powerful force and they are very uh, cunning in being able to penetrate into the rulership of the Kohanim and since the king is a Kohen and he's the Kohen Godot so they have therefore gained political power even though the 
masses of Israel, so to speak, belonged to the Pharisees, to the Prushim, uh, to the rabbinic party. Sounds familiar, yeah? Uh, one of the rules in history is that nothing new ever happens. Now we're going to have an election in the United States that's Ahasuerus uh, and So uh, nothing new happens. And uh, because of that, uh, the uh, opinion of the rabbis that Hashmanoim begins to change from being supporters of the Hashmanoim, the rabbis become critics because the Hashmanoim begin to favor the Tzdokim and the rabbis therefore uh, withdrew, so to speak, their support for the Hashmanoim kings. One of the kings, Yochanan, was married to a woman called Shlomit Alexandra, Shlomtzion. And he dies a young man at an early age. And she is left a widow, and they had no children. So according to the halacha, as it was practiced then, she... uh, is subject either to yibum, meaning being married to the next brother, or to chalitza, which will allow her to marry anybody. Since she is a queen, and since she is from the royal family herself, because again, royal families always attempted to intermarry with each other, for good or for better, the brother who is going to be the king marries her through Yibum. So her husband is her second husband, who is the king, the Hashmanoim king, and his name is Alexander Yanai, Alexander Janius. Out of all of the Hashmanoim kings, He is the most powerful and most successful. He pursues an aggressive foreign policy. Uh, He is a fearless warrior. He's a great general. And he expands the borders of the Jewish state so that they uh, reach biblical proportions. Originally, the Hashemunayim were kings only in Jerusalem and uh, like the Modi'in, etc. The coast was not Jewish. The Galil was not Jewish. The Golan certainly wasn't Jewish. But under Alexander Yanai, all of this territory, including parts of Lebanon and Syria today, were under the control of the Hashemunayim. And he builds fortresses, and the country develops. Very, very strong king. A successful king, after a while, believes in oneself. 
and certainly has a lot of psychophants. A lot of people that are going to tell him, you're doing a great job. You're the greatest. You never made a mistake. Which is what we all like to hear. So the Lord cured us of that by marriage. (laughs) But generally speaking, uh, we all like to hear that, right? And uh, we like to be convinced that uh, we're infallible. So the Talmud records for us that Alexander Yanai throws a big banquet after one of his successful campaigns in which he reconquered the Upper Galilee and built a great fortress there. And there are remnants of his uh, fortresses, archaeological remnants, remnants throughout the country here. So he comes to the banquet. Now at the banquet, everybody is drinking wine. After a while, that affects people's tongues. And there was a uh, person at the banquet who was a uh, cunning person who had a hatred of the Pharisees, of the Prussian, and he had a hatred of the rabbis. So he encouraged one of the uh, zealots, who also always exist, and one of the Pharisees got up and said, listen, Alexander, he didn't, you know, he called him by his name, which is immediately, let's say, majesty. Hanach lecha, it's enough from you. It's enough. You've got Keser Kahuna. You've got the crown of being the high priest. Okay, you've got that by genealogy, by the fact that you are descended from Aram. Okay. But uh, give up the crown. Anachalacha Keser Malucha. The crown of being the king is not yours. You are not from the tribe of Judah. You're not from the house of David. And we don't want all that power, uh, so to speak, concentrated in one person. So for the good of the people, resign as the king. Well, the king who is just coming back from such a victory and who expects... uh, Uh, such gratitude that was not what he wanted to hear and therefore he said what shall I do and the uh, man said to him Elazar ben Poira he said to him you know what to do Prushim Alecha the Pharisees are against you the rabbis are the ones that are doing all of the trouble Destroy them. They're uh, your enemies. They're not loyal to you. If there will be any uh, incident whatsoever, they will lead the rebellion against you. So he asked the famous question, the Torah, if I kill out all the rabbis, what's going to be with the Torah? 
because Alexander Yanai realizes that somehow the Torah has to survive for Jewish survival. So Torah mate oleho. What will be with the Torah? So the man said to him, Tehei munachas bekerem zovis. You know, we'll make a museum. There's a corner somewhere. We'll put the Sefer Torah there. Whoever wants to come to look at it will come to look at it. You're not, you're not destroying the Torah. To a great extent, uh, that's the greatest destruction of Torah. Torah is something that's alive. It's not, uh, you know, God forbid the, uh, the Nazis, uh, they wanted to make a museum of the Jewish people in Prague. And they collected Jewish artifacts from all over Europe. Many of them are still in Prague. JM in the AM with the uh, lecture bar by Beryl Wine about uh, Shlom Tzion Amalka. We'll get back to it, of course. Information about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. It is a Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM for this 25th day of July, day number 7 in the month of Menachem Av. Tomorrow night is Tisha B'Av. Keep that in mind. Tomorrow, of course, we'll be here with an Erev Tisha B'Av program. And on Tisha B'Av itself, on Thursday, we will have uh, commentary on the uh, recitation of Kinot by Rabbi Goldwasser from 7.30 until 8.10, a 40-minute Kinot service. If you're not in shul on Thursday morning, join us for that live right here at JM in the AM. Mark Zamek has uh, announced the uh, presentation of the Erev Shabbos show brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. It returns at 12 midnight on uh, Friday morning. Friday morning, 12 midnight, uh, again at 3 a.m. Eastern time and at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So those of you in Israel, you have a unique opportunity to hear the Arab Shabbos show at 7 a.m. on Friday morning because uh, we are airing it at 12 midnight Eastern time instead of the replay of JM the AM. So midnight, 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Friday for the Arab Shabbos show. And for those of you who listen to the Arab Shabbos show on 24-6, It'll be uploaded sometime toward the end of Tisha B'Av. Again, those of you who listen on 24-6, it'll be uploaded toward the end of Tisha B'Av. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Arav Zebunavis of Alevi and Zechonishmas Esther Basavis of Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learned that even during the darkest Golos, Hashem is always with us. We know that Yaakov became frightened. And he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the dwelling place of Hashem. And this is the gateway of heaven. Why did Yaakov Avinu specifically say, At this place, to describe it as Noira, as awesome? The Zerashim Shanas. Why is there a negative expression of Ein Zekim Beiselukim? This is none other than the house of Hashem. Yaakov Avinu could have merely stated, "This is the place of Hashem." We learn in the Halachos of Tishabov that the Beis Yosef says there are people who put a stone under their head to sleep on the night of Tishabov. It's actually a tradition that we get from this pasuk which tells us that Yaakov Avinu took me'avne ha'mokom and he put it underneath its head, Vayishka ba'mokom ahu, 
and that is the place where he slept. In his dream, Yaakov Avinu saw the Beis Hamikdash being destroyed, and when he awoke, he said, How awesome is this place! The Zerashimshan explains that when Yaakov Avinu said, He wasn't referring to the land in its current state. He saw it as the future site of the Beis Hamikdash. He was referring to the Beis Hamikdash itself that would be built on this very site. And the Beis Hamikdash he saw was one Bechorbono, lying in ruins. Prophetically he said, Ein zeh, this man-made Beis Hamikdash that he saw would not be eternal, because there would come a time when it would not exist. It is only the third and final Beis Hamikdash that would be eternal. However, the land, even in its destroyed state, even when it no longer has the Beis Hamikdash on it, will always be the Shara Shamayim. It will always be the place where the Tfilos of Klal Yisrael will find their way to Hashem. When Yaakov Avinu saw the Chorban, he called out that even in the Golos, we can see the holiness and the awesomeness of Hashem. Hashem is always there with us, whether at a time of Geula or in the time of our darkest exile. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizuk. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. with Rabbi David Goldwasser. And again, Rabbi Goldwasser is coming Thursday. Is really going to be Machazek us through Kinos this coming Thursday, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on Tisha B'Av, uh, on J.M. in the A.M. Uh, Shlom Tzion Amalka is the uh, lecture. The series is Women of, Women of Importance in Jewish History, and we're listening to Rabbi Beryl Wine right here at J.M. in the A.M. also always exist, and one of the Pharisees got up and said, Listen, Alexander. He didn't, you know, he called him by his name, which is immediately, let's say, majesty. Hanach lecha, it's enough from you. It's enough. You've got Keser Kahuna. You've got the crown of being the high priest. Okay, you've got that by genealogy, by the fact that you are descended from Aram. Okay. But uh, give up the crown. The crown of being the king is not yours. You are not from the tribe of Judah. You're not from the house of David. And we don't want all that power, uh, so to speak, concentrated in one person. So for the good of the people, resign as the king. Well, the king who is just coming back from such a victory and who expects uh, uh, such gratitude, that was not what he wanted to hear. And therefore he said, what shall I do? And the uh, man said to him, Elazar ben Poira, he said to him, you know what to do? Prushi Malecha. The Pharisees are against you. The rabbis are the ones that are doing all of the trouble. Destroy them. They're uh, your enemies. They're not loyal to you. 
if there will be any uh, incident whatsoever they will lead the rebellion against you so he asked the famous question the Torah if I kill out all the rabbis what's going to be with the Torah because Alexander Yanai realizes that somehow the Torah has to survive for Jewish survival so Torah what will be with the Torah so the man said to him uh, you know we'll make a museum there's a corner somewhere we'll put the Sefer Torah there whoever wants to come to look at it will come to look at it you're not, you're not destroying the Torah to a great extent uh, that's the greatest destruction of Torah Torah is something that's alive it's not uh, you know God forbid the, uh, the Nazis uh, they wanted to make a museum of the Jewish people in Prague and they collected the Jewish artifacts from all over Europe many of them are still in Prague because the communists kept them and now the Czech government has them they collected from all over Europe and they said that uh, we want to have a museum to show that there once was such a people and these were the uh, artifacts of their rituals and you know people will come to the museum to see it like uh, if you go uh, to the British Museum so they have a room full of busts of uh, Roman emperors a whole room full of them so you want to see what Titus looked like or Vespasian or Julius Caesar I mean you go and look at it but it uh, they're as dead as the marble that the bust is made from so that was his solution and Alexander Yanai who was full of hubris and was full of himself uh, so he agreed and therefore he began a persecution of the rabbis now let's make it a little more complicated because life is always complicated the brother of his queen of Shlomtzion of Shlomis Alexandra is the leader of the Prussian the leader of the Pharisees Shimon ben Shetach the great Tana Shimon ben Shetach and she is allied with her brother and not with her husband but she cannot do anything publicly because she's married to the king and because she knows that the king will behead her if she, uh, if she comes out against his policies publicly so she has to play uh, a very waiting game here she has children from uh, Alexander Yana who are going to be uh, the heirs the next uh, generation of the Hasmoneans 
he embarks, Alexander Yana embarks on a level of persecution almost unbelievable. I mean, Josephus records it for us in his history book, in the Antiquities of the Jews. And he records that, for instance, he executed 3,000 rabbis and he uh, crucified them on the road of Jerusalem. It was a terrible civil war. And to the great extent, the rabbis fled. They left the country. The survivors fled. And they uh, went mainly, mainly to Egypt because that was where the major Jewish community was in uh, Alexandria. And Shimon ben Shetach was one of those who fled. He escaped and he fled. And uh, Alexander Yanai uh, dominated the uh, scene. And the Dzdokin were able to uh, control the priesthood. And they also controlled the Sanhedrin. The Talmud tells us that the Sanhedrin had at times a majority of the members of the Sanhedrin were Dzdokim, were non-believers. But uh, Alexander Yanai was a conflicted, tortured person. And uh, he came to realize that his persecution of the rabbis, of the Prushim, of the Pharisees, was really not in his best interest, not in the best interests of the Jewish people. It was wrong. But by that time, he was already close to his death. And he said the... Uh, famous uh, statement which is quoted in the Talmud that he told his children that don't be afraid of the Prushim don't be afraid of the Pharisees don't be afraid of the Tzdukim of the Sadducees be afraid of the Tzvuim the Tzvuim means the hypocrites the phonies Zimri they behave like Zimri, who is, we just read about him in the Torah last week, uh, who behaves immorally. And they demand to be re- rewarded as though they were Pinchas, who stood up for morality in the Jewish people. So he dies. His children are very young yet. So they cannot become the ruler. So the idea in royalty always is that there's a regent. The queen becomes the regent. And Shlomis Alexandra now in practical terms becomes the queen, becomes the, uh, the ruler of the country. Now, the uh, people around her, the courtiers, etc., all expect that somehow she won't be able to do the job. Because until now, she was relatively quiet. They did not see in her 
the strength of her character, and they didn't appreciate uh, her vision and piety. So they thought, well, she'll take care of the kids and we'll run the government. But she did not allow that to happen. She became a very strong queen. And what she did is she brought back all the rabbis from Egypt, including her brother, and she appointed him to be the prime minister. So that the government changed from being a Sadducee government to being a Pharisee government under Shlomis Alexandra. And she rebuilt the yeshivot in the country. And she rebuilt the power of the rabbinate. Uh, she rebuilt the power of Torah. While at the same time, under her reign, she was able to retain uh, the power and prestige of the Hasmonean kingdom, which was built up by her husband, by Alexander Yana. So she's a remarkably talented woman. And she is a person, again, of vision. And she sees, she sees that Rome is there, and she sees that the country is surrounded by enemies. And she sees that uh, the Hasmoneans uh, are not guaranteed uh, eternal power in the country, but that the Jewish people will survive if the Torah will survive, if the houses of learning will survive, if the teachers of Israel will survive. That's her vision. And she is able to implement it. She ruled for 13 years. And those 13 years was when the Torah Shabal Peh, when the original Mishnah, etc., was solidified and gained, uh, again, not just uh, spiritual power, but actual political power, governmental influence, etc., in the country. So if we look back at it, she's the savior of the Jewish people because the uh, Hasmoneans will disappear within a few decades after her death. Herod will destroy them. The Romans will destroy the country. Everything that was built up will disappear. You know, in the ash heap of history, there are many uh, great accomplishments that have been destroyed. But the fact that the Torah was reinstituted within the Jewish people through the Prushim, through Shimon ben Shotach, her brother, so that, that is the controlling factor that makes it uh, that she's the savior of the Jewish people. Now she herself had a difficult life. Uh, you know, being married to a megalomaniac is not easy. And as we saw, he was a person of violence. Uh, her children uh, don't turn out as she would want them to, which often happens in life. 
we have no guarantees. And uh, she is, uh, part of the problem is she knows too much. She's too astute. You know, people that know too much uh, don't have easy lives. A certain amount of uh, naivete, even ignorance, is good. I always used to say that uh, when I was a rabbi in Miami Beach, so there was a little paper there called the Miami Herald. It was uh, like six or eight pages, uh, the whole paper. And the, the main headline was that an alligator got hit on, uh, on Route 1. Uh, you know, wasn't much doing. I moved to New York. So like every good Jew, the first thing I did was subscribe to the New York Times. The New York Times, the first day I get it, I find out there's a famine in Botswana. Uh, there's a revolution in Mongolia. Uh, there are new diseases that have been discovered. All of which never appeared in the Miami Herald. And so I was very disconcerted. Because now I knew more than, than I really had to know. So she suffers from that. She suffers from knowing more than what she really has to know. So she is uh, aware that Rome is not an ally. Rome will come to conquer the country. Because she's aware of the strategic location of the country. The problem was our location, right? If we were in New Zealand, it wouldn't be so bad. But we're at the crossroads between Asia and Africa. That we're the ports on the Mediterranean. And Rome needs all of that. And uh, she's well aware that uh, the little Jewish kingdom will not be able to withstand uh, the Roman pressures. So somehow she tries to navigate that for the 13 years that she's in charge. But uh, she uh, is not that she's gifted with prophecy as much as she's gifted with good sense. Many times good sense is is prophecy. And she realizes the precarious nature. So therefore, uh, you know, in 69, uh, uh, before the common era, Pompey will uh, conquer Jerusalem. He doesn't destroy the temple, but uh, it's the beginning of the end. The Asmoneans now are... uh, the last Asmonean kings are puppets of Rome. They have no independence. And eventually Herod destroys them all. So uh, she's not oblivious to, the, to what the future will bring. And therefore her support of Torah is even more important because just as Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saw it, Uh, the Jewish people will be able to survive everything if somehow they retain their connection to the Torah. Without that connection, God forbid, then uh, all the natural forces of history will overwhelm it and eventually destroy it.
and it's in this uh, uh, vision of hers uh, that her greatness is uh, exemplified. Now, why does the, the Lord, uh, well, we discussed it last week regarding the prophetess Devorah. Uh, God chooses women to be saviors of the Jewish people. So we saw that uh, that was the attitude towards our mother, Sora. Uh, that was Rivka saves Yitzchok from making the terrible mistake of making Esau the Bechor instead of Yaakov. The, the wives of uh, Yaakov are the ones that tell him to go home. It's time to leave. The Medrash tells us if he would have stayed in the house of Lovan longer, he would have lost uh, the opportunity to be Yaakov Avinu. You don't live with Lovan forever without becoming a little Lovan. So the women are the ones, uh, the, the Talmud tells us, the, the Jewish people were saved in Egypt because of the, the merit of the women. Uh, Miriam and Yocheved are the ones that create Moshe. Uh, so it's a, uh, the, the role, you know, the role of the woman in Jewish life was and is to be the savior, to be the one that sees things clearly, and saving the family and those that came to power, the community and the nation as well. So she fits this paradigm. She fits this role as being the one that saves the Jewish people. And therefore, out of all of the Hasmoneans, out of all of the Hashmanoim, so even though we pay great homage to the men who fought the wars, it really is Shlomis Alexandra that justified the rule of the Hashmanoim. Because the other Hashmanoim kings fell into disrepute. They are not remembered so favorably in the Jewish world. There are opinions expressed uh, regarding, for instance, the celebration of uh, Hanukkah that the rabbis concentrated on the miracle of the lamp, of the oil, and did less so on the rule of the Hashmanoim because the rule of the Hashmanoim over time did not turn out to be what it was supposed to be. So uh, it, there's an ambivalence towards the Hasmonea. You see it in the Talmud, and the, all the uh, commentators remark that there is no tractate in the Talmud devoted to Hanukkah. The Purim, we have a whole tractate, Megillah. All of the holidays have their own tractates, they have their own volume. Hanukkah is, gets really three, four lines in the entire Talmud. So there are various reasons advanced. One of the reasons is because uh, 
they were afraid of the Romans and if they made a uh, big deal of Jewish uh, revolt and independence uh, the Romans would uh, take umbrage would further persecute the Jews but one of the reasons that's advanced is that uh, because uh, the Chashem Elohim didn't live up to their to their billing they weren't what they were supposed to be and therefore uh, we uh, we didn't want to concentrate on it we didn't want to openly criticize them but we didn't want to uh, so to speak uh, give them uh, the halo of authority that they were not entitled to but she is entitled to it and it's mentioned in the Talmud Shlomtziyon Amalka uh, she is uh, held up as the paragon now Alexander Yanai according to many of the commentators was the high priest and king who was pelted with esrogim in the courtyard of the temple because of the fact that on the holiday of Sukkot there was a special sacrifice brought which is called Nisu Hamayim, the libation of water. Water was placed on God's altar. We have the, that was part of the idea that we have a praying for rain on Sukkot, on Shemini Atzeret, etc. Water is the symbol, the rain is the symbol of life and of blessing. Now, nowhere in the Torah is that mentioned explicitly but rather it is an obligation which is taught by the oral law and it's taught through uh, extra letters, extra uh, words that appear in the Torah but it is not mentioned directly and therefore the Sadducees said, the rabbis made it up it's not a real ritual bringing the water it's not nice you you bring water on the on the altar you know you got to bring wine oil something substantial water so Alexander Yanai took the water and poured it on his feet instead of on the altar as a sign of derision look it's not important and the people in the temple courtyard were uh, so furious at this public display of revolt against uh, the oral law and against uh, the tradition of the Jewish people that they everybody had an esrog in their hand so they pelted him with their esrogim well I mean if you have a few thousand esrogim thrown at you it can do a damage and the king therefore called out the guard his royal guard, mercenaries, who were not really Jewish. They were the Idumians that the Hasmoneans employed. And they slaughtered a few thousand people, Josephus describes it, that the floor of the temple ran with Jewish blood. So she is determined that these things should not happen again. 
she's determined, so to speak, that the errors of her late husband should not be repeated. And the only way that she feels that it can be prevented is through the education and the Torah education of the people which Shimon ben Shetach and the Prushim represent. And the rabbis tell us in the Talmud that he helped establish a school system. And the whole key is education and uh, what the child is taught and who teaches the child and what environment the child lives and learns. So she was aware of all of that. And because of that, therefore, uh, she attempts that there will not be any more civil wars and that uh, the Torah will not be distorted. So even though uh, after her, after she gives up being the regent and her son becomes the king, and even though then already the decline of the power of the Hasmonean kings is evident because of the influence of Rome in the country already, and because of the fact that there is internal war between her children as to succession and as to who is entitled to become the king. So even though all of that nationally occurs and occurs uh, in a very negative way, uh, what she instituted positively in the spiritual and educational realm J.M. and the A.M. on a uh, Tuesday morning broadcast and uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine and his brilliant lectures are the centerpiece of our spoken word format during the nine days. The um, lecture on Shlom Tzion Amalka, a couple of minutes left. We'll get to it coming up right here at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners' sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Well... As many of you know, we've had an amazing relationship with Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, uh, who serves in the 11th Congressional District in New York, and uh, she was uh, uh, one of the people that greeted uh, President Herzog when he was in Washington last week, and she's one of the officials from New York who took great pride in the fact that the President of Israel was addressing Congress Uh, on the occasion of the 75th anniversary, the 75th birthday of the State of Israel. We will discuss with her some of her colleagues uh, and how she felt when uh, other members of the New York State delegation were not as friendly. We'll get to all all of that coming up. Uh, Member of the United States House of Representatives from New York's 11th District, which does include, by the way, our beloved Staten Island, Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Tell me what it was like in Washington last week. I mean, having uh, you know prominent officials from Israel always brings about uh, some buzz uh, in our nation's capital. But last week, I uh, it, it certainly seemed to us from this vantage point, there was something extra special. Yeah, I mean, the president uh, gave an amazing speech. President Herzog, let's be clear, <laughs> gave an amazing speech before... <laughs> Before Congress, in fact, you know, I, I've uh, I've sat through maybe four of these since uh, I've been elected uh, two years ago, over two years ago, and this was, I think, the best speech that we heard. Um, he was very passionate. He was very direct. He was very clear. He didn't mince words. He was basically uh, 
telling how strategic and how important this relationship between the United States and Israel is. And he calls out those who don't feel that Israel has a right to exist as anti-Semites, including those members of Congress who uh, had, you know, terrible words uh, prior to his speech and boycotted the speech. Um, but he talked about that you need to improve and continue to expand this relationship because when Israel is safe, America is more secure, and it's absolutely right. You know, that is such an important strategic relationship. And also building on the Abraham Accords, which is something I'm very proud to be a member of the Abraham Accords Caucus, in which we're seeking opportunities to expand uh, th that agreement to help continue to bring stability to the region, to help bring economic vitality to Israel. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, you know, he mentioned Saudi Arabia. I mean, what, Oman is another, Indonesia. Those are countries that we've been discussing as possible next steps. And so really exciting to have him here. It was a pleasure to meet him. And also he, he said that, you know, he spent some time in Brooklyn as a young man, uh, which I was very proud as a representative of Staten Island and Southern Brooklyn in Congress to hear about his experience uh, living in Brooklyn for a little while, working with Legal Aid Society and doing some, some good work here. Oh, 100%. Yes, history from this area is pretty well known in our community. Um, all right, so we know that uh, when it comes to Abraham Accords, uh, generally the United States is looked to to be some type of uh, facilitator, negotiator, helping to bring parties together. Is it possible to expand this incredible initiative? And I'm so proud that you sit on that committee, by the way. Is it possible to expand that, that initiative with the current administration in Washington? Well, it's funny because, you know, uh, this president, President Biden, has chosen uh, to repeal almost everything that the, that the, the President Trump did, right? It, every good policy that President Trump did, he has gone to undo. It's funny how he hasn't said anything negative about the Abraham Accords, and that's because it's actually working. It's working for the region. It's bringing economic prosperity and uh, tourism and exchange of cultures and religions, and it's also bringing uh, you know, stability, and it's isolating uh, other parts like Iran, for example. Uh, but what I would say is there's absolutely opportunity to expand it as a member. I was a, a formerly a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, but now I'm on the Ways and Means Committee, and the Ways and Means Committee sees all, tr all trade policy in the United States. And so sitting from that purview, uh, I certainly see that there's some opportunities. Now, whether we have uh, a, a president who's willing to actually help, because he hasn't done anything regarding U.S. trade policy, so I imagine he won't be very helpful in trying to advance uh, Israel's uh, trade policy. But I do believe that you have members of Congress, including myself, we formed the, the, the caucus here, and there, there are going to be, um, and there have been, active exchanges with the Abraham Accord nations. I mean, uh, the ambassador of Bahrain has become a good friend of mine. Uh, and he, he's also equally as thrilled about the results of this relationship um, that has emerged between his country and uh, this, and Israel. And so we, we do see opportunities. And like I said before, I think, you know, Oman, Indonesia, I'm hoping to visit Indonesia at some point, uh, maybe in the next year. I don't know if we could get a group together. But 
there is active uh, participation among members of Congress to try to look to build upon these successes. Oh, you make such an important point. The Abraham Accords might be so strong and certainly strong enough that it may not need the full cooperation of Washington in order to move forward. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis is with us live via telephone, New York's 11th District, Southern Brooklyn, Staten Island, some of the places really important and dear to us. And we will get to congestion pricing, everybody. Don't worry. Uh, I got to ask you, and I know it's not your responsibility, but it had to give you some type of ill feeling um, witnessing members of the New York State delegation uh, boycotting President Herzog's speech, making public statements about it, really uh, boasting about it, frankly. Um, which I think is unprecedented, especially from this, you know, from members of the New York State delegation. I mean, what can you tell our listeners who you know were personally offended by the way uh, those couple of representatives behaved? Well, it's obviously very irresponsible, okay? Um, and I was glad that Pre- President Herzog called them out, you know, called out uh, for what it is. It's anti-Semitism. When you don't believe that Israel has the right to exist, which is what these members believe, when you support uh, the BDS movement and all of that propaganda, um, you, you are uh, participating in this anti-Semitic sentiment. Um, w- what I would say is it also is very irresponsible in the sense that uh, our adversaries are watching, right? Those who are trying to undermine the United States, those who are trying to undermine Israel, they're watching. And to have members of Congress in the United States of America spew this type of rhetoric that they can use to try to, uh, you know, sell their uh, propaganda and anti-Semitism is is really a uh, is so irresponsible um, that it, you know it's important that President Herzog condemn it and that members of Congress, you know, we immediately had a press conference condemning it as well with our leadership uh, and and it's and I look, I've been very bipartisan in my criticism, right? If, if, uh, if somebody on the far right says something negative, I, I will condemn them. If they, if somebody on the left does it, if something in the district happens, that's anti, anti-Semitic, uh, I've condemned it. So I've been consistent in my criticism, but this group of people have really, unfortunately they've grown in Congress, number one. Yeah. Uh, and, and number two, um, they are, they are certainly undermining, uh, what we've worked so hard to strengthen that relationship, the bi- bi- bilateral security partnership, all of that. They're, you know, they're, they're undermining it, and it's unfortunate that it's happening from within the halls of Congress. There's no room for anti-Semitism in New York City, in our country, in the world, certainly not in the United States Congress. And, and it always seemed like, and I wonder if, it, if, if you feel this way uh, because, you know, <laughs> you work in the same building, uh, it always seemed to us that there was always potential for dialogue. Even if someone did feel the way they do about Israel, there was a way for constituents, for colleagues to have a civil conversation with them. Are you able to do that? Or they're so extreme that they're not interested in sitting down discussing any of these issues with anybody? Yeah, I don't, well, quite frankly, I don't have an interest in discussing anything with them. They, <laughs> they are just, uh, you know, this is the thing. I was among, uh, I was actually one of the first to call for Ilan Omar to be removed from the um, Foreign Affairs Committee because right. of her rhetoric. And, it, and I was a member of the committee at that time, and to sit there in these meetings and hear, hear what she was saying, not just anti-Israel rhetoric, it was anti-American rhetoric, to blame the United States for what happened in Venezuela because of communism and socialism was just unbelievable to me. 
Um, and we can't have people on this committee. Uh, you're dealing with foreign governments. You are a representative to foreign uh, countries and you are anti-American. I mean, you're, the, what you're saying. And so we can't have that on that committee. And so I was very proud to be appointed by Speaker McCarthy to actually oversee that vote because of my you know, vocalism, being so vocal and, and aggressive on this issue that she needed to be removed to be able to be the one to oversee the vote and the debate uh, for that. And, and it was the right thing to do, remove her from that committee. Uh, just, you know, it was... So anyway, um, you know, we 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 try to take the action. Look, she's duly elected, right? Unfortunately, oh, yeah. I mean, she almost lost. Right. Maybe maybe this year she'll have a, a another viable primary, uh, and she'll and she could be replaced. Um, but to think to somebody who came to this country as a refugee, my mother's a Cuban refugee, so I, right. I kind of look at it from that lens. To have somebody come as a refugee and then, you know, be have the opportunity to become a member of Congress, right? You can't never do that in any other country. Uh, and then to then to spew anti-American rhetoric in that role, I think that's um, it's really disheartening. You know, it shows a lack of appreciation for what this country has offered her. Well, we thank you and we respect you for for the efforts you've made and for the successes you've had, frankly. In this area. Now, I got to give you some background so you understand what type of ally you have here, and you have a lot of allies in this audience. Um, I am a resident of Lower Manhattan. I'm a car driving resident of Lower Manhattan. I haven't converted yet <laughs> to bicycle only the way the New York City government would like to see everyone convert to. Um, that's number one. So I'm a Lower uh, East Side, uh, Lower Manhattan resident. I am. Uh, I've already declared that if con- if congestion pricing is implemented, we have to seriously consider moving out of the region. Uh, you're on Staten Island. Uh, both the Staten Island and New Jersey, and we have a lot of listeners in both areas, uh, are very uh, uh, connected to this issue. They've both issued. Uh, they've both started lawsuits against. I assume the New York City government or the federal government. You could explain that better than I can. Uh, and I don't know, the, the more I read about it, the more it seems those lawsuits don't have much merit and probably won't be successful. With all that in mind, what do you recommend the actions that can be taken uh, in light of the imminent congestion pricing? Yeah, so it's when this was jammed through by uh, Governor, then Governor Cuomo in the state legislature in 2019, I obviously voted against it as a member of the state assembly. And I had warned that this was going to have a detrimental impact on Manhattan's economy, on New York City's economy. Because remember, when Manhattan loses revenue because people don't drive in and utilize our restaurants and go see a Broadway show and go shopping, what happens? Well, the rest of us end up holding the bag and we have to pay more taxes to make up for that revenue shortage. And so I had warned about it back then. And that was pre-COVID. So imagine now New York City is trying to get it, you know, get back on its feet. It's it's really suffering greatly. People are not returning to the workplace the way they were. Manhattan looks often like a, a ghost town compared to what it was. We don't, commercial real estate is suffering because people aren't utilizing the office space. Stores are suffering because we don't have as many tourists and we don't have as many uh, tr- foot traffic like we did as a result. And so uh, all these things are happening, and here and inflation, by the way, people are suffering because they're already suffering from high inflation, and and they're and they're already dealing with uh, high tolls as it is. And here comes Kathy Hochul and President Biden trying to jam through this twenty-three dollar cash grab. So right now, where it's at is the federal government 
basically rubber stamped this thing, the Federal Highway and, and Pete Buttigieg, they, they rubber stamped this thing. They did not require an environmental impact statement, as we believe the law says is required um, under NEPA, which is the National Environmental uh, uh, Policy Act. Okay, they didn't do that. They shortcutted it. And that's what they're suing on. They're suing, saying that this is the first in the nation program. You're jamming this thing through. You're not doing the pro- proper environmental assessment. Uh, they, they put a cockamamie assessment through that basically showed that there are concerns. Right? And, that and, that's, and that's, both the, that's both the Jersey and the Staten Island suits? So the Staten Island suit has not been filed by the borough president just yet. I assume his angle will be the same. We've been uh, had preliminary conversations, and I intend to join that. Uh, as a as a party, um, but but the New Jersey is the one that's been filed so far, and that's what it says, right? Um, and they're also arguing it's a violation of interstate uh, commerce clause and all of that. Now, I'm looking at every single legal and, and legislative option. I have been with New Jersey's Josh Gottheimer, who's another good friend, right. both of Israel and right. uh, on this issue, um, and he's a Democrat, right? So we've been right. working in a bipartisan manner, anti-congestion. Uh, a caucus that we have. I've also put in language that just passed the House Appropriations that would prohibit uh, any dollars from going from being used by federal highways to implement a tolling agreement with the MTA. This would stop it dead in its tracks. Uh, I believe that will get through the House, and then we'll have to see what you know happens over in the Senate because nothing's been done in the Senate. They, they actually literally don't pass anything in the Senate, and so it's become quite a challenge uh, to actually get business done. Um, with that said, uh, I, I'm looking at that angle as well. So, so I, I'm still doing everything I can over the last four years to, to try and stop this thing. I still have faith that we can do it. Um, I think the lawsuit's a very good lawsuit. I think they have merit there because that's what Josh and I have been saying all along, that they violated the NEPA law by not doing a full and thorough study, which, by the way, would take a couple of years. And if we have a new president next year, that can also be a way to stop this thing. So we need to delay it. If we can't stop it, delay as much as possible, uh, and that's what we're that's what we're aiming for. Which is why you're seeing them scramble and try to jam this through because they know that they're in trouble, uh, and they try to get it done as fast as possible. Unbelievable. Well, I'm literally broadcasting today from Josh's district in our Teaneck studio this morning, um, so I sympathize certainly with our Bergen County friends. And as you know, I'll be I'll be visiting again for the 40th year in a row, I believe it is, for the high holidays. I'll be visiting Staten Island and the new Springville Jewish Center. So it seems like every everyone we care about is getting, is getting ruined by this thing, frankly. And by the way, on Staten Island, between the you know the Verrazano and the and the uh, you know extra gas required to get anywhere because of its uh, um, because of its uh, um, its location, I mean. It seems like, uh, I don't know, it seems like you guys in Staten Island always get the raw end of the deal. Well, this is the funny thing, and I, and I said this, uh, it's not funny, it's actually heartbreaking. We, we didn't vote for the mayor, we didn't vote for the governor, we didn't vote for the president, right. we were being subjected to their ridiculous policies. That's right. But the thing is this, they always, we're the forgotten borough when it comes to the things like we need, right? Like Like transportation options, for example. But when it comes to putting a migrant shelter, all of a sudden they remember where Staten Island is. Uh, all, you know, it comes to raising property taxes. Uh, then they remember where Staten Island is. So, so that's the thing we get. We get. We don't get the good that we should as a borough of the city, but yet we still manage to get the bad. Then they want to give us our fair share. Then, so I would just say that look, do these things in the in the communities that actually voted for you, Mayor. Don't come to Staten Island because we don't support these policies. Yeah, I got it. Southern Brooklyn too. Southern Brooklyn too, by the way, which I proudly also represent. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Some beautiful areas in that uh, in that uh, part of your district. Um, well, can't thank you enough. Uh, I, um, I I thank you for fighting on behalf of uh, of Israel and its right to exist. And frankly, anybody you know on the front lines in the United States House of Representatives that's now taking that stand is actually doing that. Is literally fighting on the front lines politically and diplomatically for Israel's right to exist. And more locally, uh, Congresswoman, uh, it's nice to know that we have an ally <laughs> and that as they as they build the easy pass bars that apparently are going up already, and as you described, trying to really stuff this down everyone's throat as quickly as possible, it's good to see that you're doing everything in your power to delay and hopefully completely destroy congestion pricing. Well, we'll look, we'll keep up the fight. I'm glad that we have uh, other people joining in. And, and you know what the shame is? I talk to other Democrats who are from New York City who don't support congestion pricing, but they're afraid to speak out because they're afraid mm. of AOC and the radical left. Uh, and that's the shame of it. You know, people know that this is a bad policy, but they won't join the fight because they're afraid. They want to. It's about self-preservation, not about preserving their districts. And that, I think, is a sad thing. And people should push their representatives if they are against congestion pricing. Now is the time to call your representative and call Senator Schumer and Gillibrand and let them know that this is a ridiculous thing to try to take $23 to drive into another borough in the city in which you live. Yeah, and the governor also. Who knows? Maybe this will be the uh, the impetus for voters to finally get some of these uh, elected officials out of office. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much. A real pleasure speaking to you again. Great to be with you. Thank you. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, 11th District, Staten Island, Southern Brooklyn, a couple of places really dear to us. And she's fighting uh, an amazing battle on so many fronts and um, really described beautifully what it was like being in Washington last week when the president of Israel was there. And on the more local end on this congestion pricing issue, boy, whatever we could do to uh, to stem the tide of this one, we really need to step up and do it and con- and contacting our elected officials immediately would be a great place to start jm in the am at uh, 20 minutes after the hour thanks for joining us everybody on this tuesday morning broadcast uh let's uh, wrap up the lecture about shalom Siona malka and then we'll uh, get to more information and then uh, more of our barrel wine here at jm in the am king who was pelted with esrogim uh, in the courtyard of the temple because of the fact that on the holiday of Sukkot there was a special sacrifice brought which is called Nisu Hamayim, the libation of water water was placed on God's altar we have the, that was part of the idea that we have a praying for rain on Sukkot, on Shemini Atzeret, etc. water is the symbol The rain is the symbol of life and of blessing. Now, nowhere in the Torah is that mentioned explicitly. But rather, it is an obligation which is taught by the oral law. And it's taught through uh, extra letters, extra uh, words that appear in the Torah. But it is not mentioned directly. And therefore, the Sadducees said, oh, the rabbis made it up. It's not a real ritual. Bringing the water, it's not nice. You, know, you bring water on the, on the altar, you know, you got to bring wine, oil, you know, something substantial, water. So Alexander Yanai took the water and poured it on his feet instead of on the altar. 
as a sign of derision. Look, it's not important. And the people in the temple courtyard were uh, so furious at this public display of revolt against uh, the oral law and against uh, the tradition of the Jewish people that they, everybody had an esrog in their hand. So they pelted him with their esrogim. Well, I mean, if you have a few thousand esrogim thrown at you, it can do a damage. And the king therefore called out the guard, his royal guard, mercenaries, who were not really Jewish. They were the Idumians that the Hasmoneans employed. And they slaughtered a few thousand people, Josephus describes it, that the floor of the temple ran with Jewish blood. So she is determined that these things should not happen again. She's determined, so to speak, that the errors of her late husband should not be repeated. And the only way that she feels that it can be prevented is through the education and the Torah education of the people which Shimon ben Shetach and the Prushim represent. And the rabbis tell us in the Talmud that he helped establish a school system. And the whole key is education and uh, what the child is taught and who teaches the child and what environment the child lives and learns. So she was aware of all of that. And because of that, therefore, uh, she attempts that there will not be any more civil wars and that uh, the Torah will not be distorted. So even though uh, after her, after she gives up being the regent and her son becomes the king, and even though then already the decline of the power of the Hasmonean kings is evident because of the influence of Rome in the country already, and because of the fact that there is internal war between her children, as to succession and as to who is entitled to become the king. So even though all of that nationally occurs and occurs uh, in a very negative way, uh, what she instituted positively in the spiritual and educational realm continued. And it continued in the development of the other great Tanoim of the time till you come to Hillel, until you come to the time of the complete development of the Mishnah and the beginning of the development of the Talmud. So she, so to speak, is responsible for all of that. If it wouldn't be for her, it could not have occurred. Now you can say, you know, well, God would have found a different way, but that doesn't change what happened. Megalgalin Schus of Yedei Zakai. The good things that happen, happen because of good people. And heaven, so to speak, chooses good people to have these good things happen. And she is uh, more than a good person. She's a pivotal person in Jewish history. 
you know, there's a street named for her in here in Yerushalayim. It's a big street. It's one way. <laughs> it's never the way that you want to go, by the way. But the Shumtsi and Amalka, so many times I remember that uh, I, I uh, was once uh, going there. The, the street branches off at one place from the Yafo and uh, somebody asked me what's the name of the streets I said it's Shlomzi and I said, he said who's that which is a good question right because you know she uh, they were not not that well known and uh, generally uh, Jewish history is not uh, really on the top of the list in the schools but uh, I, I told the, the person you know that uh, if you have a street named after you in Jerusalem you must be an important person right the, the, the truth of the matter is that if you know the, uh, the streets of Jerusalem and you know who they're named for and you know what they stand for you know a lot there's a great deal of wisdom in choosing here so uh, she, uh, her street, by the way, intersects. There's a street there, Yanai, after her husband. And all, all of the Hashmanayim are in that neighborhood. But she is the, the queen of all. So just like there was Queen Esther, Esther Amalka, and so there's Shlomzi and Amalka. And there's a parallel between the two. Esther also is married to the wrong man. And she also has a complicated and difficult life. Uh, and she saves the Jewish people. She rises above her own personal difficulties to be able to save the Jewish people. So Shlomzi and Amalka also. He's married to the wrong man. He had a very difficult life. But her mission and her vision was to save the Jewish people and to save them through Torah, through education, through the oral law, through the loyalty of tradition, all of which is what she represents. And therefore she should be and is uh, to be remembered very positively and a woman of enormous influence in Jewish life even until today. This J.M. in the A.M., the uh, topic of uh, women of importance in Jewish history, Rabbi Beryl Wine, that was Shlomtzion Amalka. We have one more to go for today as we continue our spoken word format here at J.M. and A.M. because we are in the nine days. Um, okay. J.M. and the A.M., good morning. Welcome to a Tuesday, and thanks for joining us. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Someone on the app I see has asked me for the information regarding the uh, Zoom ID for this coming Thursday for the Isaiah Wall, the quote-unquote Isaiah Wall Mincha service, all being done by Zoom this year. So we'll supply that. If you'd like it, you could either write to me, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, or you can uh, contact uh, Glenn Richter, 
Um, 5784 for information on that. Camp Hask Experience Day is Sunday. We'll be broadcasting from there. You'll hear that broadcast on Monday morning. Um, the live concert at Hask is uh, going to feature Joey Newcomb and Baruch Levine. It's all this coming Sunday. You're invited to Parksville, New York to participate in the Camp Hask Experience Day between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And we're looking forward to being there. It's always a fun visit to Camp Hask. This coming Thursday is Tisha B'Av, and Rabbi David Goldwasser will be leading our kinnis service this coming Thursday, starting at 7.30 a.m. right here at JM and the AM. 7.30 a.m. You'll hear our kinnos presentation, myself and Rabbi Goldwasser. Those of you not going to shul on Thursday... Uh, participate in our Kinos service live on the air. Again, that's Thursday, Tisha B'Av, starting at 7.30. Simple as that. Um, Rabbi Dr. David Hertzberg, one half hour from now, on Israel at 75. This week's topic, the Arab Army's attack. Remember, he's in the middle of the discussion of the Yom Kippur War. So that'll be happening at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, Rabbi David Hertzberg. Um, uh, coming up at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Rabbi Beryl Wines series information at 1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-800-1-
so that's what makes this uh, very interesting and uh, part of the problem is that she's a legendary figure and she has been uh, hallowed uh, by uh, the uh, Beis Yaakov movement and by the religious world of Jewry so that uh, we have created uh, a legendary figure and the legendary figure is not always the accurate description of the person himself or herself so she's born in Krakow in uh, Galicia in Poland in 1883 now, uh, Jewish Europe, especially Poland and Lithuania, at the end of the 19th century, from let us say 1860 onwards, underwent a dramatic change. Uh, it became secularized. You know, all the stories about the, that the Jewish people got lost in the United States or got lost in Israel, etc., but that. In, Europe, everything was perfect. That's all fiction. Uh, the secularization of the Jewish people took place in Eastern Europe with great rabbis and great rabbis and great Russia yeshiva with a wealth of Torah, but the masses became secularized. And they became secularized for many different reasons. First of all, there was a zeitgeist, there was a spirit of the time. The spirit of the time in Europe generally was one of tremendous change, of uh, the abandonment of religion, of the weakening of the church. And we all know uh, there's uh, a famous statement, Vies Christelzach, Hazeidelzach. And the way it is in the non-Jewish world, that's the way the Jewish world reacts as well. So in a society like the Middle Ages, where the church was dominant, and everyone, at least on the outside, was a religious Christian, so Jews were, uh, at least on the outside, they were religious Jews, because there was no... No other definition, so to speak, of a human being at that time. But by the 19th century, that was not true. The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, all of these things combined uh, to create a society that basically was becoming irreligious. And uh, our society... European society today is the end result of that where uh, the vast majority of people in Europe today uh, do not go to church uh, do not uh, see religion as being an important part in their lives I remember I was in uh, a month ago I was in a small town in Italy, one of those picturesque medieval towns that has more churches than people. And Sunday morning, nobody was going to church, which uh, when you see it, for, and this is Italy, this is the Papal States, this is uh, 
where the country is uh, nominally 95% Catholic. So you had this zeitgeist of not being religious. That was one thing. Second thing was you had this terrible anti-Semitism, both in Poland and in Russia. And Russia controlled parts of Poland then. And uh, Jews, uh, so to speak, uh, couldn't take it anymore. So they searched for a way out. One of the ways out was to pick up and leave, which two and a half million Jews from Eastern Europe did before the First World War, most of them coming to North America, to the United States. Some went to South Africa, some went to South America, some went here to the land of Israel, a very small number. But they picked up and left. And that was especially true of the young, because the young had nothing to lose. People that were already older or better established always find it hard to move. And the third factor that was involved was the rise of the left. That all of a sudden there came new ideas into society. Uh, Marx and the Communist Manifesto in 1848. Uh, There were revolutions all over Europe. Socialism, communism, anarchism. And this uh, was all predicated on the fact that religion was bad. Marx said it was the opiate of the people. Poisoned them. And you had this uh, as it remained a very, and the left remains very popular till today. Because the left promises utopia. Everything's going to be fine. If you only vote merits, it'll all be wonderful. They have the solution. They'll make peace, there'll be social equality, and these are all appealing attractive ideas the only thing is that uh, whenever the lift got in it didn't work but the ideas are certainly more attractive than what anyone else is offering and uh, part of the idea the, the, the left so to speak substituted religion for this social welfare democratic progressivism that became the religion. To a great extent, that's the religion of a substantial part of American Jewry today. Tikkun olam. We're going to fix the world. Well, how can you be against that? So all of that combined uh, to create a uh, very, very volatile situation in Jewish Europe in the 19th century. And hundreds of thousands of Jews, mainly the young people, uh, deserted the ranks of Jewish observance and even of the Jewish people. In the 19th century, in Central Europe, Germany, Austria, 250,000 Jews converted to Christianity. They didn't do it because they believed in Christianity. They did it because they wanted to get ahead in the world. If you want to be a judge, 
You want to have an important job. You want to you want to be the conductor of the Viennese Philharmonic. You can't do it if you're Jewish. So Gustav Mahler became Christian. And he became the director of the Viennese Philharmonic. And uh, so uh, in Eastern Europe, the Jewish world is falling apart. Now, we hear all the fantasy stories about how great it was, you know, and how everybody loved being poor. You know, but they were all, they were all poor, but they were happy. <laughs> But uh, most poor people are not happy. And the Torah preaches against poverty, not for it. And uh, Jews, uh, because of the anti-Semitism in Russia, uh, became very prominent in the revolutionary movements that were going to topple the Tsar. So they were overrepresented in the communist movement and in the socialist movement and amongst the anarchists and the ideas of the enlightenment swept throughout the Jewish world they were in the yeshivot I mean Valoshin produced great Talmidei Chachomim great scholars, Torah scholars Rashi Yeshiva, Rabonin was the greatest it also produced great communists great secular Zionists they all came from the same from the same turmoil so that's part of this background the second part of the background is the changing role of women uh, throughout the, the middle ages and uh, even the early modern period women were little more than chattels they belonged to the husband or they belonged to their father and uh, they were illiterate Uh, they held only the most menial jobs and uh, you have to imagine uh, you know it's hard for us to imagine but um, a world without running water so you gotta go to the well every morning to get water so who went to the well to get water? the woman and then you have to bake or cook so you need fire fire needs wood who gets the wood how do you get the wood so the woman had to go out and collect the wood and she has to take care of the children it was an awful time to be a woman we uh, don't realize what technology has done you know uh, if God forbid your washing machine breaks you know your dishwasher your refrigerator so that's the end of the world I remember yet my mother a blessed memory we had an ice box we didn't have a refrigerator and we had a guy schlep up a 50 pound chunk of ice once a week and put it in the ice box so there was no such thing as you know a cold drink now uh, women were illiterate most of our ancestors in eastern Europe the women could not read or write they uh, knew uh, Judaism as a societal religion I mean they learned it from 
what their friends and they learned it from their mothers they knew the basic laws that dealt with them but uh, they were illiterate there were exceptions so he had famous uh, rabbinical wives and daughters uh, usually they were uh, born into family that had no sons so therefore in the absence of, of having a brother or a son to be educated the father educated the daughter so there are great legends about Rashi's daughters and other uh, throughout Jewish history but uh, 99% were illiterate could not read or write and in a rapidly changing world technology was coming into being then uh, so uh, you could not expect that women would be satisfied to be illiterate and then there was one other factor and that is that in the late 19th century in Poland and in Lithuania not so much in Russia itself but certainly in Poland the government required uh, elementary education so how did that work Uh, I'll read it to you in a few minutes but how did that work Uh, the Jewish system of education was that a young man studied in the cheder till he was 10 years old and then if he uh, showed promise so then he was passed on to the rabbi of the town and the rabbi would learn with him it was part of the uh, job description of the rabbi but if he didn't show exceptional promise so he went to work life was short there were no ideas of child labor laws so he went to work if the child studied with the rabbi and the rabbi felt that he showed exceptional promise so then the rov of the smaller community sent him on to a bigger community to a greater rabbi and this was the system until Valozhin opened as a yeshiva so then became more institutionalized and by the 1870s there were other yeshivas there was Slabotka, there were other Mir there were other yeshivas already that were institutionalized but they were very small in number the entire Lithuanian Jewish community all the yeshivas together before the war if I'm talking before the second world war was about 3,500 students which is less than the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem alone today we have never had the numbers that we have today I'm not talking about quality but in terms of quantity Lakewood has thousands Yeshiva University where do you have these numbers but what happened to the girls so the girls were still raised as being illiterate now the Polish government said we will not tolerate that so the girls went to the Polish public school system and the Polish public school system was geared uh, to make the Jewish girls less Jewish it was so much so 
I remember um, my, uh, one of my rabbeim told me that in his city, the religious Jews sent their children, sent their girls to the Catholic school. Because in the Catholic school, at least, they would not uh, speak against religion. So they were less afraid of the influence of the nuns to make their daughters Catholic than they were afraid of the influence in the public school of what would be. This is the world that she is born into. So I mentioned she's born in 1883 in Krakow. Her father was a Belzer Chosset. She comes from very distinguished lineage, traced back to uh, the Shach and to the Bach and to the other great, great Talmud Chachomim of the 17th century in Poland. And her father sends her to public school. Now, again, in the politically correct biographies, uh, this does not appear. You know, we have such a... It's, it's a little so warped. I, I, know, I know a great Rosh Yeshiva, and the, he, he spoke in Lakewood, I think three years ago or four years ago, and he mentioned offhand that he went to public school. And afterwards, he was uh, roundly told, don't ever say that again. I thought just the opposite. Look, he went to public school and he's a great Rosh Hashiva. But in the backwards mind of it, if a Rosh Hashiva went to public school, how can he be a Rosh Hashiva? So she went to public school. She went for eight years to public school, to Polish public school. And she was mocked by her Jewish contemporaries they called her it's an interesting play on words uh, they called her the Kleine Hasida the small Chassid but Hasida also means a stork because she had a prominent nose and we all know how kind children can be to each other and uh, she uh, has a wonderful mind. She's an outstanding student. Now she wrote a diary of herself, which uh, again is not very popular, and it's not very politically correct. So she writes that uh, uh, since she was uh, the daughter of this Belzer Chassid, so her father uh, on Shabbos, because during the week she went to school, so on Shabbos, he would tell her orally the Parsha, or the Torah reading, and also the prophets. And he eventually gave her a Yiddish translation, because they weren't allowed to teach the, uh, the Torah itself. So he gave her a Yiddish translation. There was a book called Senarena, you know, other books in Yiddish. It was a famous translation of the Torah into Yiddish later. And she would stay up at night and study the weekly portion of the Torah and the prophets. Now I'm quoting her diary. I enjoyed it tremendously. 
as it enabled me to understand the roots of the Jewish heritage and the beauty and depth of thought and holiness. But I also took a great interest in secular knowledge, in education, history, and literature. I especially admired classical works of Polish and German writers. I had, I loved reading them. So this is where she's coming from. She's not coming from, uh, you know, uh, she's not coming from Beis Yaakov. <laughs> Which is one of the ironies, right? That, that's why I mentioned the Lord has his, has his people. When uh, she finishes elementary school, uh, she wants to continue to go to high school and then to attend the university. But the family is so poor, so elementary school apparently was government-sponsored. But past uh, a certain level, you had to pay for it, and she could not pay for it. The family did not have the money. So she went to work, and she became a seamstress, which was a, a typical Jewish uh, woman's trade. Uh, even uh, as late as 50 years ago. And uh, she uh, noticed, she, as she writes in her diary, she said, I noticed that my customers, the women who come in, are so particular about their clothing. And they want every stitch this way or that way. And they're very hard to satisfy. He said, she said, but I notice that they have no concern about their spiritual self, about their true clothing. That was her expression. They're only interest, interested in the outside dress. They're not interested in the inside soul. So she's a very sensitive person. But... Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine with the Electron Sarah Schneerer here at JM in the AM. We will open up our broadcast tomorrow with that full lecture and then take it from there. Information about Rabbi Wine's lecture is 1 800 499 WEIN. 1 800 499 WEIN. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Rather, the web and AlchemSingle.com and the AlchemSingle Network, and of course, the beloved NSN app. Wraps up. An amazing Tuesday here at JM and the AM. Rabbi David Hertzberg, Israel at 70, follows next. Tomorrow morning we're back. Erev Tishabov. Thursday we're here with a live Kinnis service at 7.30 a.m. on Tishabov with Rabbi Goldwasser. And, of course, Friday is Erev Shabbos Nachamu. Schedule for the Erev Shabbos show for Shabbos Nachamu. Friday morning at midnight, late Thursday night, midnight Eastern time. Then again, 3 a.m. Eastern time Friday and again 10 a.m. Eastern Time Friday, all brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. Sunday, we had the Camp Hask. You'll hear that show on Monday, please, God. Have a fabulous Tuesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.